Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The Telegraph. the Telegraph Podcasts Hello listeners, Briny here. Just a quick warning that there's some colourful language in this podcast, so it might not be one to listen to with children around. Right, now that's out of the way. I hope you enjoy the show. I would describe it as like if you're fading a record in and out. Like, so I faded out the alcohol and turned up the volume of the gambling, but absolutely unaware that that was what I was doing. Got to the point I'd sold every possession and I was literally homeless. Hello, my name's Bryony Gordon and I want to welcome you to this special series of Mad World. And I say special series because it covers a subject I know all too well. Addiction. Addiction, recovery and mental health go hand in hand and as many of you may know, it's a journey I've been on and I'm still on. So for this year's Addiction Awareness Week, the Mad World team have joined forces with the amazing charities Action on Addiction and the Forward Trust to bring you a series of honest conversations about addiction, be that to alcohol, drugs, gambling or something else. We're slowly breaking down the stigma of discussing mental health, but addiction still sadly remains taboo, even though we will all know someone who's been touched by it which means I'm especially grateful to my guests on this series for having the courage to speak to me. The road to recovery is not a straight one. There are twists and turns and some more twists yet again. Our guest today is Hayley, a woman in her 40s with an amazing story. Her experience of cross-addiction will sound familiar to some of you, and I'm incredibly grateful that she's been brave enough to have this conversation with me when both her addictions, alcohol and gambling, are still so misunderstood. She's an absolute force and we're so pleased to have her here on Mad World with us. So Hayley, welcome to Mad World. The first question we ask everybody on this podcast, from Spice Girls to mental health nurses to you, is how are you really right now? Very good. A little bit nervous. You nervous about this chat we're going to have? Yeah, a little bit. Don't be nervous. Thank you. The only other person who told me that they were nervous in answer to that question was Prince Harry. So you're in good company. Yeah. It's natural to be nervous because I think we're talking about a subject that not many people talk about, right? Yes. So Hayley has come in to talk to us about addiction because we are doing a special series of Mad World 
to mark Addiction Awareness Week. And Haley has very generously, and it is a generous thing to do, to talk about your personal experiences of addiction. It has come in, she's got on the train, <laughs> come into central London, sit with me and talk about her history of addiction, which covers gambling, also alcoholism. So Haley, I'm fascinated as sort of addict to addict. Can you tell us a bit about how you first sort of started using alcohol and gambling kind of in an unhealthy way? Right. I would say my life is understood backwards, right? So I would say the anonymous signs were there around about age 12. Okay. Realistically. But I didn't realise just how bad I was till I was 44. So the wheels started getting really wobbly, I'd say around 2017. Right. Um, with serious detrimental effects on my health, finances, etc. And that's when I realised that I couldn't stop. And this is alcohol you're talking about? Or? This is gambling at this point. Gambling. The alcohol stopped around 2005. Okay. And I... I would, when I reflect back and I would describe it, it was like if you're fading a record in and out. Like, so I faded out the alcohol and turned up the volume of the gambling, but absolutely unaware that that was what I was doing. And then before I know it, I'm like, oh, oh, this is, this is a real problem. And yeah. And so in 2019, it got to the point I'd sold every possession and I was literally homeless. And I turned up at the treatment centre with just a suitcase. That's how how much it got a hold of me. So you said that the sign, the ominous signs were there at the age of 12. And that's quite, because I think a lot of people think with, say, addiction and alcoholism, we think of the person on the park bench with a paper bag or, you know, in the, in the alleyway. And actually, often you hear it said when speaking to alcoholics and addicts that they were, they were basically born alcoholics. Well, yeah, I, I think because, especially with alcohol, it's so readily available, socially acceptable. And... The assumption that when other people drink, they feel the same as me. Like, I have one and I'm like, that's it, I'm off. Mm. And I feel, and if you're partying, which I was, you know, from the age of 17 until like my late 20s, um, everyone's kind of doing it. So it's, it's just not, it's not until the wheels start coming off that you think, oh. So you would always, from the start, you couldn't ever just have one? I think it was more, well, no, I, I would never just have one it kind of seemed pointless um and it just it just never happened that I had one and when I first I was 12 and my granddad who doesn't drink uh but they always had a cabinet full of like quite fancy uh drinks for whatever reason this one night and I was staying there he had some Quantra and he gave gave some to me and I, and even that one night I didn't just have one me and my granddad got absolutely wasted and that's why I was like I, I quite like this and then I started stealing alcohol and taking it into school and getting drunk at school. So there's kind of like these things that, when I look back, that other people weren't doing. Mm. But at the time, it's just I was just a bit rebellious, you know. I sort of laughed then, which seems inappropriate when talking about alcoholism. But I laughed because when you said having one just seemed a bit pointless, like I still, I don't know about you, I still look at people, like my husband just has one. 
And I remember he used to say to me, why don't you just have one? And I'd say, why don't you just fuck off? <laughs> and I genuinely, sorry for all the swearing, I genuinely now still think it would be, e- it's easier to have none yeah. than one. Mm. Yeah, well, it just kind of never happened. No. Mm. And did it occur to you that it was different for other people? No, because there were no consequences at that time. And and like me and my friends, we I'd be in London on a Tuesday night partying, like, from the age of 17. And so, like, it just kind of... I mean, I did get arrested when I was 17. What happened? For, um, so my, me and my friend were at the fridge partying and or clubbing or whatever. And, the fridge uh, in Brixton? The fridge, yeah. yeah. And um, it was mostly men there. And uh, so I got a bit bored and uh, my friend gave me the car keys and a bottle of poppers and said just don't spill the poppers and don't drive the car. But I decided to have some poppers and I decided to drive the car and I got arrested in Brixton at 17. Again, ominous signs, but I didn't know because it's just... And you didn't think that's a sign to stop? That's a sign that, you know, you're a bit out of control. No. So when did the wheels start coming off? So around uh, probably late 20s, early 30s, um, I wasn't going out partying or clubbing, I mean, you know, going out at weekends with friends and stuff like that. I mean, even that was, I was starting to withdraw a bit there, but my drinking would be daily. And it got to the point where I was obsessing over alcohol, but not telling anyone. So thinking, what time can I have my first one? You know, will it be like socially acceptable? Or even when I was on my own, like five o'clock. Okay, that's all right. Mm. And I would think, have I got enough to see me through the night? Have I got money to get some more? And is there a shop open? My mm. my thought became obsessive. And that's when I thought, you might become alcoholic if you carry this on. <laughs> I had no idea that because my perception was the park bench and the brown paper bags, um, that's when I thought, oh, this is a bit of a problem. And I, and I became obsessed with that. And the only thing that kind of quenched that obsession was alcohol. Mm. But then at some point, like I said, I just, I don't know what happened, but, one the volume on one turned up and and alcohol went down and I felt quite cocky about it honestly. So you thought that you'd just given up alcohol? I thought I'd quite easily tapered off it and I've done it myself. Yeah, I've done it so myself. So the volume, can you remember the first? You you know you you remember clearly the first time you had a drink with your granddad. Can you remember the first time you gambled? Gambling was always around, like. Um, I would gamble as a young teenager on horses. I would be able to study the form that I understood about studying the form and stuff like that. I quite enjoyed it. So it was always there. I just can't remember when it increased. So I always enjoyed I had like, um, again, I didn't really think it was much of a problem, but I had like telephone accounts with bookies like in the early noughties and I would just ring up and place bets. I'd like watch the odds and go, oh, that one's going to win. And I, d- I didn't think that was a problem. I thought that was perfectly... Normans and and I guess it is for most people that is normal. But um, what I mean is I I wouldn't have told anybody about having that, and I would have placed my bets in secret. So there was kind of something there. Once it had become sort of an everyday part of my life, it was so. Say for example, I would make a commitment to never gamble again, which I made many times, and I'd fail. It was. Just like having, um, I can't think of a like room. Just everything would be silent. 
it, you know, drown out any any thoughts I had about any responsibilities just gone because I would be completely and utterly focused on what I was doing. Um, yeah, that's, and I think when I've read up on it, I think what it does to the brain is the same as cocaine. So, of course, it's quite the pull. So, like, your my rational brain that makes that commitment to, to never do this again is completely oblivious to a much powerful force that's going to go, yeah, you are, you know, but, and I'm in it before. I've, it's like I've made no conscious decision. I'm already there. Mm. And then I'm like... And was it about the winning or was it more than that? Was it like a process? I'm sure at some point I must have thought it was about the winning, but when I when I reflect back, I think losing became more addictive than winning. Because, really? Yeah, because the consequences become so much greater. Like once once I'd got to a certain level, because I think with most addictions, I think the, the real killer, I, I mean, if, if you take away the health, yeah. you know, like of class A's or whatever... Is all these lines in the sand, your morals, your philosophy, your values, you, and you just, and they become eroded. You trample all over yeah, them. They, then they just, yeah, completely, they disappear. So I just think, like, whatever it does to the brain that gets you to start, it just needs to increase the volume of, the, you know, the pound, pound, pound in your brain, whatever is firing off. So like a sort of endorphin hit. Yeah, and the massive... I mean, in addiction, we're in a permanent state of fight or flight. Yeah. And I think with the losing, you know, I've, I've drawn... All the lines in the sand are gone. I'm spinning so many plates. I'm lying to everybody. But not only am I lying, but I kind of want to keep them away because I don't want them to see what they're doing. But I can't keep them too far away because I may need to manipulate them for money. Mm-hmm. You know? So it's all these things that I'm trying to juggle whilst trying to keep a persona of life's all right on the outside kind of... Yeah, whilst everything on the inside's falling apart. It's, um, see, I think in the end, when I look, because I would win lots, and then towards the end I was gambling really small amounts, but the point was to keep it going for lot, as, as long as I could, and then they had to despair when I'd lose. When you say lots, what are we talking about here? Well, um, so when the wheel, like I said, 2017, the wheels really started coming off, during that time, I had in the bank, this was, this was the plan, I had in the bank enough to buy a little property outright. That was what I was going to do. I'd, I'd ended a really long relationship and um, I had enough money in the bank, buy a little property outright and I was going to apply to be a foster care and all these things that I'd wanted to do. So that was sometime around the March of 2017. By the June, all that money had gone. I wasn't in my own property. I was in student digs point of going to the student digs was in my mind it's fine I just need to get that money back and student digs were the cheapest place mm-hmm. right because I'm just going to save that money again you know I'm going to get it back um and then fast forward to September I had to move back in with me mum <laughs> because you know so you'd literally gambled away everything you everything had. so yeah it's you know the case of having it and pulling it all down around me so yeah like serious amounts of money and then absolutely nothing and then the price of selling off possessions my car and anything that I could get over a tenner for in the end you know so it's very similar to any other addiction well yeah I was going to say when you're talking about it I'm thinking of like pawning things so you can buy drugs yeah yeah which is kind of something that I did once yeah yeah you know absolutely I did that yeah and so talking about you'd lost everything 
and you spoke about you spoke about the secrecy of it. Mm-hmm. You know, the trying to. Can you give me a bit of a background to how your life was on paper? Because and again, this is this is what keeps us in addiction is that we have these like really unhelpful stereotypes of what an addict looks like. And yeah. the thing that kept me in addiction for so long was thinking it was a, like part bench drunk and it couldn't be me and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. But then also it strikes me that I have this idea in my head of a gambler as being like a bloke. So it's, <laughs> I don't know why it's a bloke. Like, why should it be? And that's my own internalised sort of well, yeah. going into the betting shop or whatever. But actually, what was your life like on paper? Yeah, so very average. It's the answer. So um, I was in a relationship. We went on, you know, a couple of holidays abroad every year, city breaks, go out for meals, go to the theatre. And then what happened was just a real, a gradual uh, withdrawing from doing each of those things. So, so nothing happens overnight. I think that's, it kind of goes slowly, slowly, and then quickly. That's the problem, isn't it? And then when it's quickly, it's because you know, all four wheels are uh, about to fall off. But, yeah, so I would say, you know, on the outside, I would strike as very average person. Normal. (laughs) No no one's an average person. Well, no, I know, yeah, but I can't, like... No, but he looks all, like, (laughs) life's good, yeah? Like, I have a, like, I have a manageable, normal life. Yeah, Um, but I do have lots of theories about, like... You know, I think um, perhaps not stimulating my brain enough, and like, so I do think there's like, I do think there's a genetic component to to addicts, and mm. there's a, there's a distinction, isn't there, between someone who becomes addicted to a thing and someone who is an addict, and so I do class myself as an addict mm-hmm. rather than someone who became addicted to something. Okay, so you think you know we can talk about your gambling, but really it's a you. You could have become addicted to anything. I think it's there, but for the grace of God, no one ever offered me heroin. Honestly, I just I was very fortunate um, where my life turned. Well, I left home at seventeen, and I just, I think I just lucked out in the people that I hooked up with around that time. And yeah, yeah, they were just drinkers. I think that was the thing I really wanted to talk to you about. Is that kind of notion of cross addiction that mm-hmm. I don't that I think isn't you know I think if you're in if you're in recovery or you've experienced it, you you do know about it. But I think it can be something that out there in the, you know, the general knowledge bank of the world, we think of addicts as drug addicts and alcoholics, but we don't, you know, it's only really recently that, you know, A, that there are rules and regulations around advertising, example, for gambling, you know, 20 years ago, probably wasn't considered an addiction. And it's only now that we're starting to look at things like food, you know, mm. sex, love. Yes. And it's a very common thing for people to get sober, to put down one drug, whatever that may be, and then pick another one up. Yeah. Untreated addiction will manifest in all kinds of ways. And if you've discovered like alcohol or class A's, it's it's likely to remain there. But it will I think it will pop up in like work, you know, if you're a workaholic, people, definitely people and food. And I think as well with perhaps people uh, with substance addiction who relapse because because the consequences of, of drug addiction are so severe, if they reflected back, it's possible they may think, okay, well, this happened, this happened, and it would have involved a person or porn 
or gambling mm. and then bang they're back onto heroin but because heroin is like so like wow the consideration of the relapse, of the relapse happening yeah. of being like quite slow if you like but actually the signs are there yeah it, and untreated addiction will i believe just manifest somewhere else you know for me it was gambling for someone else it could be food or people So the wheels came off in 2017, but it wasn't until 2020, was it, that you actually got proper treatment? Yes. Can you talk to me about those interim years? Yes, yeah, so I spent most of them in bed. So, um, yeah, I stopped working in 2018, kind of lost any impetus or get up and go or whatever you want to call it. Get yeah. up and don't go. <laughs> Get up and don't go. It just, yeah, it's just, and my room looked like landfill, mm -hmm. you know, it's just, and again, even that wasn't really like, I mean, it is an ominous sign, <laughs> but like, yeah, so so that was um, leading up to it. But I I would have spurts of a bit of fire in my belly of somewhere underneath thinking this this, this isn't how you normally are. This isn't really you. So I would have spurts of, right, put yourself together. Let's, you know, let's let's go do something different. I'd trape the streets, go exercise, and I'd like cane it at the gym perhaps for a month. And then I'd just find that I was back. I couldn't sustain it. Um, it's like being on a pendulum, you know. Extreme addict behaviour. Yeah. It sounds like. Yeah. So, so... I then reached out to NHS uh, mental health because, again, I didn't really know what was wrong with me. And that's the truth. Like, you could think, well, it's obvious you've got a problem with gambling, but I didn't, didn't seem but to kind of... But you stopped gambling by that point. No, no, no. no you were still gambling. No, yeah, there's no stopping. So you'd, you'd moved in with your mum and then now you're living, you're you're basically existing. Yes, yeah, so I'd done a geographical because my, my mum lives 200 miles away. Okay, so I did a geographical for a year. Geographicals, just in case anyone listening doesn't know what a geographical is, it's yeah. very common in recovery uh, circles to talk about. But geographicals are basically when you move somewhere else because obviously that's going to sort your problem out. It's where you're living that's the problem. Yeah, yeah, I remember yeah. a friend saying to me, Bryony, wherever you go, there you are. I know, yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, we don't know, do we? We don't understand that. We kind of have to learn the hard way. So, yeah, I did a geographical 200 miles and then I came back to my hometown. And then I reached out to NHS Mental Health. They did some kind of assessment and they referred me to CBT, for CBT. And I had to wait two months for that appointment. But I went and I, at my first appointment, she said, we can't treat you until you've got your gambling un under control. And I'm about ready to lose my mind. So I'm like, well, that's, that's why I was come here. So I, 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 that kind of gave me a, a bit more fire in my belly. And... Um, from there, I looked online. I was like, I need to be removed from my environment. I can't do this on my own. So I started looking at places that did recovery and I, I was put in touch with the gambling clinic in London. They did an assessment, said, yeah, I need a treatment, but their waiting list was like forever. And then I found this place and I won't name it because I don't want to 
getting anyone in trouble. But I found this place that specifically was res residential for gamblers. But it was the residential was for men only. And so that gave me a bit more fire in my belly. Why was that? I don't know. Like I said, I'm not really interested in getting anyone in trouble. Or not in trouble, but it made but their policy change. But also it shows you what you're up against as a woman gambling. And yeah. how like it's the odds are stacked against you. Yeah, I just pardon that. I didn't mean that language to come out. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> I wager that you didn't. Um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> Let's not get into a like pun off. Pun off. Yeah. Yeah. So what they offered was the so the men got um, the men got ten weeks uh, residential treatment and the women got a weekend. What I know. It's like. Because I've got to like take care of the fucking kids, you know. Like I was apoplectic, you know. I was absolutely so angry, but it kind of that that kind of kept me alive. I think because I swear to God, I'd I'd done what I thought I was supposed to do. I reached out, mental health, da da da, da mm. and everywhere we're going. No, sorry, we can't help you. It's like, well, these are the steps I've been told to take. So yeah, a bit of fire in my belly, and I um eventually was able to get residential treatment. Uh, in 2020 at um, clouds at clouds how did you get there like how did you i obviously didn't pay for it myself well this is the, i mean because <laughs> what you're bringing up here is a very important point Haley, which is that you made the decision to ask for help right and we're forever being told speak out let people know and then at every point you were sort of sent somewhere else or cut off or had the door slammed in your face, essentially. Yeah. And you kept on going. And it, it isn't easy to get help. And, you know, and, and you summed it perfectly there when you were talking about going to the NHS and you were told you could have CBT. And then they were like, we can't give you CBT until you've got your gambling under control. And you're like, well, how am I supposed to do that without the CBT? How? Like, yeah, I was looking back. That kind of was a blessing. But, you know, it may not have may not have turned out that way and when you say about it being hard to reach out for help picking up that phone to the NHS was so hard but I felt I felt I was either going to jump off a bridge or be found wandering the streets speaking in tongues losing my mind because I, I honestly didn't know what was wrong with me that is you know obviously you can say well you, you're not can't stop gambling but it's like why can't I yeah 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 what's why wrong with me can't I and like the, the the mood pendulum of like highs and lows with no kind of any time in the middle just being one way or the other it's just exhausting and I just thought I can't deal with this but yeah so uh, a bit of fire in my belly and I managed to get funding I applied for funding for clouds through a charity so a charity funded your place. And this yeah. is the thing. Rehab is very, very expensive. It yes. is not readily available upon the NHS. That's not much help to people listening if they are listening to your story, Hayley, and realising what their problem might be. But I will say just now for people listening that there's an amazing charity called Action on Addiction who I'm an ambassador for. You can call them up, you can go to their website, and they do fund places at Clouds. And Clouds is this, like, incredible rehab centre in Wiltshire. It is. Where Hayley went. It, it, yeah, it is incredible. Because I think we have also the other thing, I mean, look, there are so many unhelpful um, 
myths about addiction and, and all the rest of it. And, and rehab, I think lots of people imagine is like celebrities wafting around in um, in waffle robes. <laughs> Don't want to have to be waffle robes. Um, I didn't see a single waffle robe. No, no, I never saw a waffle robe either in, in rehab, I have to say. And it's, it's a pretty tough place. And uh, certainly the rehab I went to saved my life. But yeah, can you talk a bit about what it was like when you went in and how transformed you were when you went out? Sure. Um, so when I went in, I'd say my condition was just the most overriding feeling was sadness because I still wasn't sure how I'd end up there. And I, you know, not to bring out the violins, but I was, you know, I had a tiny little suitcase and that was all of my belongings, right? And uh, so I'm 40, I think I was 44, and the taxi driver. So it's all my effort just to, you know, stand up right and put one foot in front of the other, you know, because I'm just dying. And uh, the taxi driver, he got my little suitcase out of the boot and he brought me up to the um, entrance and he put his hand on my shoulder and he went, I'll come and get you in six weeks. You'll be a different woman. And honestly, like, you know, that kindness, you know, just trying to hold it together. And then I got through the doors and then I was greeted and I couldn't like hold it together much longer. So <laughs> tears come. But then I've got to hold it together again because I've got to be introduced to other people in there. And it felt like um, I felt like I like, had no bones and could just evaporate into water and, and just disappear through the, the floorboards. I just that's how I felt. I had no nothing no energy or anything but so that was like the first my first uh experience going through there and then I wanted to isolate that's what I wanted to do but you're not allowed to mm -hmm. and so like the first first few days as soon as I was able to sort of get out of the main area I would go and sit in a bath and cry mm -hmm. Because the bath was the only place you kind of like uh, people weren't allowed. <laughs> people weren't there. It's just sat in the bath because it's while my brain's just trying to equilibrate. You know, it's trying to like yeah. yeah, whatever that word is. You know what I mean? And so yeah, all the emotions are like kicking off, and then it just settled, and you know, it's just joined the community, and uh, it was yeah, it was an amazing experience. Um, and I would say that. Uh, they know what they're doing because you're not overstimulated, but you're kept busy, mm. you know, and uh, you're around people that probably for the first time you hear stories of identification. And I think that's kind of like the most important part of it. It's like, the relief. oh, wow. Oh, wow. Because I genuinely thought as well, before I went in there, that what I needed was a diagnosis, right? Not a lot of an addict, but a psychiatrist go, we're going to have to do some extensive tests on you, Hank, because you're a very special case. You know, we're going to have to do some scans and mm. you've got Haley syndrome <laughs> or whatever, you know what I mean? That's what I thought, because then it would give me some kind of excuse, if you like, for mm. my behaviour, because I couldn't understand it. So that's what I thought I needed is, was a diagnosis, but um, I didn't. And I'm quite glad now. Turned out, like, you were just a communal garden addict. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a relief, though, isn't it? It is a relief, and it's it's a relief to know that it doesn't have to stay that way if, if I don't want it to. So, just listening to you and just like you just took me back to when I arrived at rehab and that thing of sorry, like you just have that thing where you think you're such a freak and you think you're so like 
you can't imagine that anyone else is as awful as you are, you know? And it's like the shame, like you're just dying of shame. Sorry, I'm really sorry. And um, and then you go somewhere and it's like you're just another person and they don't run away and they don't scream and they don't call the police and they go, well, come in, we're going to look after you. Yeah. And they put their arms around you and you're like, what the fuck is this? Like, this is not, and it takes a while to get used to that, doesn't it? It does, yeah. And also, like, the judgment that I had about certain types of people were just absolutely smashed uh, when I went in, in there. Because, yeah, you got everybody from all walks of life. And, uh, yeah, and so, I, you know, that, that has become invaluable. And uh, some of the friends I made in there that I you just wouldn't put us together in any of this, you know, just our worlds just wouldn't cross, mm. you know, for various reasons, you know. Um, so, yeah, it is amazing. And, and, you know, the compassion now that I have, that I never had before because of just the ignorance. Mm. Um, the compassion you have for other people, but mm. do you have compassion for yourself? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm good. I realise a lot of when it's pity, it's quite self-centred. So now I don't, I don't allow that kind of thing. I don't allow, I don't allow it to seep in. It's just so unhealthy. So yeah. no, I don't. I'm good. You're good. I'm Sorry, good. I'm, I'm, I'm. Haley is saying this, by the way, and I am literally. I don't know what's gone on. I don't know what button you've pressed in me, Haley. But it's like <laughs> it's the tears button. So going to rehab sort of gave you. Um, it gave you a way to live your life, like mm-hmm. a, a way of life, the 12 steps. Yes, because they, they bring 12 steps in to talk to us and that's kind of like the first real identification. I'm like, oh, shit, yeah. I, I felt like that, I did that. Did you ever have any, um, you know, obviously we don't talk about 12 steps that often because, you know, we're not supposed to or, you know, there's an anonymity thing. But, you know, if when people ask me how I got well... I tell them, you know, or when they say, you know, what would you advise? I tell them I go to a 12-step fellowship. And the kind of face is always, oh, no, but I don't, I'm not religious. I don't get the God thing. And it's it's like the first reaction of everybody. It was my first reaction. And you have to go, oh, no, it's not. Someone said to me, it works for people that believe in God and it works for people that don't believe in God. But the only people it doesn't work for are people who believe they are God. Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> yeah, that sounds pretty good. Yeah. That sort of sums it up. But it is, you know, it is why the two of us can sit here in this studio today talking to each other because we're part of a massive, incredible, life-saving fellowship, you know, that has over 80 years, 90 years, 80 years, saved countless millions of people's lives and not just saved them, but given them lives that, you know, they couldn't beyond beyond their wildest dreams um and it's free and it's free yeah so like I wanted to talk a bit about that without talking about it <laughs> yeah well do you think that do you think I've covered that <laughs> yeah well the, the testament is we don't have to talk about specifics but I'm 45 now and from the age of 12 until 44 I engaged in dangerous behaviour and didn't know what was wrong with me. And I 
since doing the 12 steps, it's been, what, 19 months, I haven't touched anything and I don't need, I don't feel like I need to, you know, and... So you're 19 months 19 clean, months. sober. Yeah, it's, it was February 2020, I went into clouds, so yeah. And what was it like, and, you know, this is a conversation I think lots of people have had, because lots of people have got sober during the pandemic. And I mean, that's hard. Like, I, 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 I have a huge amount of respect. Life Life can always be hard, but I think life generally has been hard for the last, I mean, for basically the entire time that you have been sober. You got sober in February 2020, March 2020, along comes the pandemic. How are you, but I guess also there's that thing of the gratitude to be sober during something like that. Well, yeah, and um, I'd kind of made a commitment to myself to kind of embrace absolute boredom and and it, as it happened you were given lock- no choice <laughs> yeah <laughs> lockdown so I had to kind of occupy my time in healthier ways and zoom was a godsend obviously all the meetings and everything on zoom taught myself piano did really what, yeah I carry on I, I say taught myself it's not completed Obviously, but, <laughs> but I complain. But like Haley, four years ago, if someone sat down with you four years ago and said, "Hey, by the way, Haley, in 2021, I'm going to chat to you, and you're going to be sober and clean from gambling and everything, and you're going to be teaching yourself to play the piano," what would Haley 2016 say to Haley 2021? Well, I think me, I would have been like happy if that was true. Like, oh, really? Cool. Um, but I would be, I'd find it hard to believe, um, but I would be like, oh, sweet. So, yeah, so I did I, I did find ways to o- occupy myself, but I, I know it's not been easy for a lot of people. So what do you do? Tell me what your life is like now. What are your, what, apart from teaching yourself to play the piano? Well, I've also been writing. When I say these things as well, like, I've done them literally. I'm not saying I'm good at them, okay? Stop. This is, <laughs> no, I just I... say, <laughs> the, Stop. <laughs> Yeah, but it's like you're doing them. Yeah, I am doing them. That's enough. Can yeah. we just can we just leave it? Like this is such an addict thing, is like caveating achievements and going, well, the thing is, I may have been doing this, but I'm terrible at it. it and you just terrible. need to know. And it's like, it doesn't matter. You don't need to be good. Just just say, I've been learning the piano, I've been writing. So I wrote two screenplays. What? Yeah, so the first I the first one had been rattling around in my head for about 10 years and quite clearly I had other priorities. But I did plan to do it. But during lockdown I did that and then I hated it and I so I started another one. So I do that and I'm, you know, I do a bit of service work. I exercise every day. I go out running or walking. Do you like Just running? Very, I do. But only on the treadmill, funny. Really? Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. controversial. Hey, yeah. Hey. Well, I just like to put my headphones on and just like. I love the way that you've just told me this whole story of addiction, and then the thing I say is controversial is that you like running on a treadmill. <laughs> that's <Yeah>. that's. Hmm. <laughs> outrageous. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I know. Who runs on a treadmill and enjoys it? I love it. Yeah. So just really really wholesome activities and the thing is as well I'm seldom bored like I'm quite happy what I want in life now is harmony that is what I seek just harmony I'm done with that other stuff it's just being okay with the world as it is right now it's not being like I want to it's not like I need to do this and I need to do this 
and I should be doing this and I could be doing this is just going, this is the world as it is and I'm okay with that. Yeah. I mean, those thoughts will come. Of course, because we're human. But yeah, the, we have the tools to uh, bring it back to the moment. And like my worst times are when I'm thinking about myself too much. Like, just don't get on that merry-go-round. <laughs> Ring someone, you know. And I have, and I, I never had that before. Doing service. Yeah, yeah. We just, just had no tool. That's what I'm saying about the self-awareness. Having no tools to understand this isn't how it has to, has to be. Like, you know, all these uncomfortable feelings. You know what they mean and and things like that. I didn't understand that they could be changed just by changing the way I thought about them. But also, you know, you talk about not having the tools, but I don't think it's very British. Like, we're not given the tools, are we, as kids? Do you know what I mean? Like, the only tool we really pick up on is that at the end of the stressful day, they go and get a pint or whatever. And and I think that we're very much brought up to believe that the only valid and right feeling is happiness. So if we feel anything other than that, we feel almost like we're failing as humans. And so we want to, like, get rid of it, you know? And, hey, here's alcohol, here's drugs, here's gambling, here's porn, here's random strangers you've met off the internet and there's there's a place I've been. You know, it's actually that wonder of going, oh, my God, I feel like shit and that's okay. Yeah, yeah. I'd go as far as saying that happiness isn't even uh, something that I aspire to anymore. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, it can't be sustained. So, yeah, I just, yeah, harmony. And uh, I'm going to start start sounding really pompous. Like, <laughs> I'm not, you know, I'm not like... <laughs> you oh. know what? You're brilliant. Yeah. I lo- I'm, having, I'm really enjoying this chat. I feel like um having a little meeting. So if anyone is listening right now and they, they think they might have a problem, recognises a bit of themselves in your story... What would you say to them right now? Right, well, if you think you are an addict, then 12 steps. If you can have the tools to uh, change, then use them. If you want to do the work, so a lot of people don't. People are scared. But some of us, like, you hit a rock bottom and you got to sink or swim. You most definitely do. I'm swimming, baby, I'm swimming. Before you go, please follow Mad World on your podcast app to make sure you never miss an episode. And if you feel like it, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I love to read what you think about the shows and see your guest suggestions too. The Telegraph also let me loose in the paper. So if you'd like to hear more from me, head to telegraph.co.uk forward slash madworld and you can get your first 30 days access to the website completely free. This series was produced by the legendary Louisa Wells and Giles Gear. And if you've been affected by anything we've talked about in our podcast today, the following organisations offer free and confidential support. Action on Addiction, who along with the Forward Trust have helped us put together this series, are a UK charity providing support to people who need rehab, as well as a wealth of resources for those battling addiction issues. They can be found at www.actiononaddiction.org.uk. For honest information about drugs and help and advice in the UK, head to www.talktofrank.com or call 0300 123 6600. 
wearewithyou.org.uk are a charity who offer free confidential support to people in England and Scotland who have issues with drugs and alcohol. For information in Northern Ireland, go to services.drugsandalcoholni.info. In Wales, you can contact Dan247 at dan247.org.uk. If you are a child of an alcoholic, you can get advice and support from NACOA for free on 0800 358 3456. And importantly, please remember this, you are not alone. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.